Hey everyone, Michelle Seidling here at Food Experience Unplugged. Today we're interviewing Dr. Benjamin Hardy, organizational psychologist and author of the book, Personality Isn't Permanent. Break free from self-limiting beliefs and rewrite your story. We'll talk a lot today about personality myths, how people change over time, and the importance of setting goals in order to redesign your environment and become your future self. Dr. Benjamin Hardy, welcome to Food Experience Unplugged. I'm happy to be with you. Hey, well, thank you. We are happy to have you, especially in light of your new book, Personality Isn't Permanent, that is on pre-order now, and I think it comes out in June, so we're excited to, to meet and talk with you a little bit about that. Will you um, introduce yourself a little bit and kind of what tell us what brought you to this point? Yes. So how's it going? How are you doing, listener? <laughs> Whoever you are, and grateful to be with you, Michelle. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm living in Florida. We, my wife and I live in Orlando, Florida. We, we came here to Orlando from Clemson, South Carolina. We were living in Clemson for about four and a half or five years. That's where I did my PhD in organizational psychology. And we came here to Orlando because my wife's just an enormous Disney buff. She just wanted to be by Disney. She actually, uh, <laughs> she, she actually was Mary Poppins for a year. Um, really? Yeah, like in a in a college program, she was she came here and she was the Mary Poppins, and so we have pictures of Mary Poppins in our house. She's just a big Disney fan, and <laughs> so that's why we live in Orlando. Um, while we were in Clemson, my wife and I we did the foster care thing. We had we got three foster kids during our first year uh, that I was there in the PhD, and you know we fought the big battle. Took three years, a lot of time in court, and. Uh, we were able to adopt the kids and then we got twins after that. My wife got pregnant. And so now we've got five kids and we're living down in Orlando. And yeah, and while we were in Clemson, I, that's where I really started blogging. I started blogging online in about 2015 and just kind of, I really was able to grow on medium.com and learned how to write viral content. And in 2018, published a book called Willpower Doesn't Work. And then now, now we've got this book. And so that's, and I, I would say there's many things that led me here, you know, grew up in a traumatic environment. Uh, my dad was a drug addict for a long time. I ended up serving a church mission that really inspired me and led me to wanting to uh, be a writer. So I mean, there's a lot of things that led me here, but now this is just where I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Well, we're sure glad. I think all of your experiences kind of, kind of really meld, I guess, in your, with all your psychology research and really, really helping people to become their future selves. So that's, yep. that, that's awesome. Now we're into food and wellness here at Food Experience Unplugged. So how have your own food experiences influenced your life and your work, do you think? A lot. I think food is such an interesting topic. Um, I, you know, I think about, it's funny because we get different translations of willpower doesn't work, you know, and like sometimes I'll get mailed like a German copy or like a, you know, in some of the copies, there's like pictures of donuts on the, on the on, on, you know, like this is the cover of the English version, but like on some versions, I don't even know what it says, but there's like a picture of a donut. And I'm just thinking it's funny from like a willpower doesn't work perspective. Um, you know what I mean? Like, you know, but uh, yeah, food's really interesting. Um, I have semi-stomach problems. And so like my, I mean, I don't, I don't deal with them that much because I control what I put in my stomach, but uh, every once in a while I'll just have intense stomach pain. And so like 
food for me is I've, I've, I've had an interesting relationship with food for a long time. And I always feel really great when I'm eating clean. Uh, I've done a lot of fasting over the years. Um, for a year, my wife and I and our three kids back when we only had three of them, we went a full year, completely refined sugar free. And when we got them, there was a lot of trauma and, you know, an extreme like ADHD experience. And it, we, we saw sizable changes when we went off sugar. Actually, as a family right now, we're actually off refined sugar. We've been off refined sugar since the beginning of 2020. And from like a willpower perspective, you don't even really think about it when it's not in your environment. You know, it's just not really a part of our life right now. Like we, we have all sorts of good desserts that we can make that are sugar free. You know, we've made like crepes, you know, for Easter and, you know, there's really good, like natural, uh, like key lime pies that we make with like avocados. I mean, so it's, it's amazing. Like when you, when you're just kind of doing it and it's not in your environment, you don't think about it. So you don't have to deal with decision fatigue. So I don't know where I'm going with all this, but food to me is really, interesting and important. And I, I feel terrible with my creativity and just honestly, in my confidence, if I'm, if I'm bloated and inflamed, <laughs> like, you know, I'm just like, I, and so it really impacts my life. That's I think awesome. it's super important. I think it's because like, it's an essential conversation. Sure. Absolutely. No matter what you're doing, if you're doing your writing or if you're doing podcasts or for whatever you're trying to be a good dad, I mean, it, it'll throw you off. Why this book? at this time? Yeah, I think that this is an important book right now. Um, a lot of, well, there's a lot of trauma, you know, I mean, trauma is one of the big reasons why I wrote the book is because I think a lot of people are, are opening up about some of their former experiences that are negative. Um, and, and, and we're coming to realizations that there are reasons why we get stuck in our lives. And it, it's not just because we're, we're not great. Um, so the reason I wrote the book and it wasn't just trauma, but I read the book, the body keeps the score, which is an important book. I read that book in 2018 and that's kind of the definitive book on trauma. And, and a lot of the things that, so that, that in that book, Bethel Vanderkolk talks a lot about how trauma freezes your personality and keeps you stuck in the past. Mm. Uh, trauma and trauma is kind of any negative experience that you hold on to, you know, it could be that you were told you're not smart or it could have been something way worse, you know, um, but trauma shatters your flexibility. It leads you to being very emotionally rigid and you're, you essentially aren't flexible to deal with change or, or to deal with learning or growth. It shatters your imagination. And so that was one thing that was really interesting to me. Uh, obviously I had gotten my PhD in organizational psychology and a big thing that we studied was, you know, test development and, you know, how to create good tests. And all my professors would, you know, rail personality tests like Myers-Briggs and Enneagram, and they would just explain why these tests are not valid and reliable and why they, you know, are essentially pseudoscience. So I thought, I just thought that was interesting. Um, and I, I know that personality testing is like a $2 billion industry. And I, I just think it's interesting how people define and describe themselves. You know, personality is such a big topic. And so I just I felt very compelled that I wanted to write a book explaining what it is, how it works, how it gets shaped, and ultimately how we have a lot of leverage over how who we become, and that it really should be based on our future, not on our past. And so I just felt strongly, you know, that people needed to understand this so that they could under, so that they could become who they want to be. Sure, absolutely. Now you're you mentioned you know trauma was one of the reasons why you wrote the book. A lot of times when people think of trauma, they think of of abuse or yes. maybe witnessing some horrific event. But a lot of times it can be more subtle. And we um, 
talk a lot about um, your food experience background, like how your food experiences influence your food choices and, and your food goals, things like that. So what, um, I guess, what are some, how can trauma be a little more subtle and influence you in that regard, even if it's not some, some large event or there? Yeah. I'm actually really interested in what, what you talk about, about food experiences. I, I kind of want to hear about that. Um, yeah. So in the book, I actually talk about a very big subject in the world today, especially in the U well, in the U S particularly, and that's, that's math trauma, you know, but you know, really trauma is any negative event that shapes you. So like I tell the story of, of a woman that I know and, um, she was, she was in a private, you know, art class and the art teacher corrected her work in front of everyone. And she was so embarrassed because everyone was watching her that it, it essentially was a traumatic experience for her. I mean, even if she wouldn't have defined it as trauma, she was in a private art class because she wanted to be in, like, she wanted to learn how to draw and she hadn't done that very much. And because she was so embarrassed being corrected in front of everyone, a thought entered her head. And the thought was, I'm not very good at this. And, 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 and it was a negative experience. And that thought is what we as psychologists call a cognitive commitment, um, or it's an identity narrative. And so because she had a negative experience and then she never told anyone about it. I mean, that's one of the key aspects of trauma is that you internalize it. You don't reframe it. Usually with emotions, there's your, your initial reaction. And then hopefully there's a reframe afterward where you choose how you want to deal with that. But with something like this, you usually form a narrative real quick. And then you don't deal with it. You don't talk about it. You don't seek encouragement. You don't seek help or guidance or mentorship. You just, you just make a decision in the moment that this is something I'm not going to do anymore because you've just had a negative experience. And so as for this woman who I'm talking about, she never drew pictures again, even though like she still had the dream within her to draw kids books. And so trauma shatters your flexibility. It shatters your imagination. It shatters your hope. And, and because you've formed some strong narrative about why you can't do this anymore, you no longer are willing to even try. And so, I mean, it can really stop you and your goals. I mean, in the book, I actually share the quote from Robert Brault, where he said, we're kept from our goals, not by obstacles, but by a clear path to a lesser goal. Mm. And so the idea is, you know, we're not kept from our goals by obstacles, but instead, at some point, we hit some you know, at some point it just becomes so, you know, too difficult. So we choose to take a clear path to some lesser place, um, you know, and so we can, we could go a lot further than we do in our lives, but we need encouragement and support and help along the way. You need to, you need to be able to express your emotions, learn how to understand them. And basically the idea of traumas is that it hasn't been expressed. It hasn't been reframed. You're still holding on to how you initially experienced it. And so even, you know, this the event that I'm talking about with this woman occurred probably 40 years ago, you know, but she still sees it and feels it from the perspective of when it happened. It still hurts her to think about it. In the past, when in, it, in its best form should be information you can use, not emotion that you still are, are pained by, you know, and you, it becomes emotion by you thinking about it, by you choosing to look at it different ways, by you choosing to decide what you want to do with it. Um, and if it, and usually the, the past is best if it's just a, a well of information and experiences that you can use to hopefully make better decisions in the future. Mm. So is trauma kind of, you mentioned that there, there aren't really obstacles, but is, is trauma 
a quasi obstacle or, or something to some, something that you have to overcome regardless of, of well what let's you're just put it with. this way when you're going through life you're going to have emotional experiences some of them good some of them bad and if you're pursuing any goal or if you're just going through life you're going to have bad experiences um it will become traumatic if if you let the bad experience determine how you see yourself you know so some of the bad experiences are just by virtue of being alive you know my parents get divorced I get in a car accident. Um, someone's rude to me. Someone bullies me. These are bad experiences that can be traumatic and they can, they can really influence your self-image and shrink your goals and your hope and your, in your courage and your confidence. Um, but on the, you know, on a different dimension, by pursuing any goal, you're going to face obstacles. And, and those obstacles could become traumatic if you, if you don't get support and help through them. So like, you know, learning how to write articles as an example, I could, you know, when I first started writing articles, I remember when some people would comment on my posts and tell me how terrible they were, you know, you know, like I, I could, I could, you know, that I remember initially it really hurt. I was like, holy cow, this is crazy. Like maybe I shouldn't do this anymore. You know, and that would, and if I would have stopped, that would have been a trauma, you know, but you have to like, you have to learn how to deal with your emotions when you're pursuing life and when you're pursuing goals. Cause there are obstacles along the way and those obstacles will either, you know, you, you can either break through them or they can kind of break you. Um, and this is why usually you need encouragement and support and accountability. You need, you need supportive environments. You need encouragement. You know, no one becomes like an Olympic athlete on their own. They've got coaches and people there to help them through the glass ceilings. Cause if, if at, we all hit plateaus and those plateaus can become traumas and it becomes a trauma if you, have a failure to some degree, and then you form the narrative, oh, this is, this is as far as I can go. Okay. So you're kind of putting up your own roadblocks, so to speak. Almost. Well, you have an emotional experience that could, or good, could be good or bad, and you either commit to the idea that this hurts too much that I, I'm not going to try this anymore, and therefore you become defined by the past, or you get the encouragement to reframe it and say, yeah, this hurts, and I made a mistake, but I'm going to keep going. You know, just as an example, when I launched Willpower, it was pretty traumatic, to be honest with you. Like I spent a lot of money trying to launch that book and hit a goal and I didn't do it. And I actually went into about a three or four month depression after I launched that book. Because wow. Yeah, because I didn't, I felt like a huge failure. Um, and, it, and I felt like I let people down and I was kind of embarrassed by how it all went down. Um, and, you know, when you have, you know, decent failures, you, you can sometimes question yourself and question your path. And that's, Eventually, you need to either get over it or you choose to go on a smaller path to a lesser goal, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so, usually, you need some time to recover. What they call it in psychology is a refractory period. A refractory period is the amount of time it takes to emotionally recover from an event. You know, so if someone cuts you off on the road, you might have an initial reaction. You might have been scared or angry, but hopefully, you can recover from that and let it go so you can keep moving on with your day in a few like 30 or 60 seconds, you know, or a few minutes. The problem with certain events is that the refractory period never closes. Like it just keeps going. Like, you know, someone might never recover from certain events. And then, you know, the longer it persists, the more your personality is continually shaped in a negative way by that event. And so, you know, I'll admit, you know, we've all had hard events, you know, you could go through a depression or, you know, you could, you know, you could have a, you know, a friend die or a family member die or, 
you could get divorced. I mean, there's, there's things. And I will say for me with the willpower book, it did take me honestly, like probably two or three months to recover. <laughs> like it was, it was a big, it was a big failure, but at some point I had to get back to the future and say, I have to just learn from this so I don't repeat it. And I, and then you got to go back to the future and you got to get back to your future self and about who you want to be. And you, you can either learn from your experience and say, this happened for me. This is something I can either use or you can be the victim to it and say, you know, then just blaming everyone else besides yourself. And if you're still blaming your other people then, or blaming external things, then you're not using it as a lesson for a better future. Mm, okay. So yeah, that's, that's super interesting how you're like in the, in the case of your, the artist, uh, the lady who did the art, she hung on to it for, what did you say? 30 or 40 years. She never recovered from it, to be honest with you. She still actually is defined by that experience. She still doesn't believe she can do art. Wow. And like, Yeah. yeah, she still has that same belief that she's not good at it and that she'll never be good at it. I mean, that's one of the things that trauma does is it leads to a very black and white and very rigid thinking about yourself. Mm, yeah. It's not based on your future self. It's based on your former experiences. So you're not imaginative. You're not creative. You're not pursuing learning and growth. You're not going through what's called deliberate practice where you're learning and growing and getting better. You know, had she written 50 books, you know, or even 10 books in the last 30 or 40 years, Maybe the first few would have not been so great, but over time, if she'd gotten some help and some coaching and learned, she would have gotten better. It's just like you with the podcast. You get better the more you do, right? Um, <laughs> it's like me with, with my books. I mean, I think that this book's a lot better than Willpower Doesn't Work from my perspective. Um, it, but I wouldn't have been able to write this book had I not written the first one. So you kind of, you have to just be okay with the work you're doing today is not as good as the work you're going to be doing in the future. In the book, you mentioned there's a lot, there are a lot of myths about personality. So can you tell us a little bit about what are some of the myths? Absolutely. Um, so uh, from a pop culture perspective, personality is often viewed, is viewed as innate and unchangeable. Like you are who you are. You're born hardwired as the person you are. The research is really clear on this that your personality is going to change throughout your whole lifetime like they've done tests it's called longitudinal studies where you study something and then over time you keep studying that same population so they've done tests now where they've studied people's aspects of people's personalities and then studied them like 20 30 40 years later now at this point because of the research people's personalities are fundamentally different in all ways by the time like from their youth to their late adulthood and so your 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 personality is not unchangeable um people often think because of the view that it's innate in in and it's your core authentic self and it's who you are that you must discover it you know that it's something because it's unchangeable you must discover who you are and so this is one of the reasons why personality tests are so popular like the mainstream personality test is because they claim to kind of tell you who you are and so they can give people a sense of identity and kind of gives people a sense of self-discovery um, which they kind of do actually, but it's, it ends up leading people to overly adopting a label about themselves. And ultimately it creates a fixed mindset, um, which ends up leading them to spending their life trying to confirm the label rather than trying to actually become who they would like to be. Um, so yeah, people, people try to discover their core self. And then the belief is, is that once you actually discover and figure out who you are, then you can finally start pursuing the life that you want to live or, or that you're meant to live. You know, you can set goals that are, you know, 
they fit your personality. You can get in relationships with people that fit your personality. I mean, it's a very uh, passive, very reactive way to living. Um, Mm. And it ends up leading to kind of a fixed mindset where you're just kind of searching for who who you are rather than proactively making decisions about who you want to be. So those are kind of the core myths and they, they very much limit people and they don't really reflect the science. And, and that's really when you think about it, when you take a personality test, you're the one describing yourself. And mm-hmm. so your view of yourself changes over time. And uh, Daniel Gilbert, he spent a lot of time studying personality change over time. He actually gave a TED Talk. It's about six minutes. It's really worth listening to. It's called The Psychology of Your Future Self. Um, but he talks about how, you know, if I were to ask you, just as an example, Michelle, but he does this with people like, he asks people and I'll just ask you, are you the same person you were 10 years ago? Definitely not. <laughs> yeah. What, you know, what's so funny is that is like the common answer. And so like, if you, if you think that you're not the exact same person that you were 10 years ago, then does that mean your personality has changed to some degree? Oh, it would have to be. So yeah, it would have to be if you're not the same person. <laughs> so, but here's the thing that's interesting about Gilbert's research is that after he's asked people if they're the same person and pretty much everyone says, no, I'm not the same person. I've got different priorities, different goals, different habits, different, you know, different beliefs in many ways. Um, he then asks, well, do you think you're going to be the same person in 10 years? And, and interestingly, a lot of people actually think that they will be, even though they've, even though they realize they've changed so much in the past, they actually think that they're probably going to be quite similar in 10 years from now as they are today. Mm-hmm. And that's because from our current perspective, it's easy to think that your current self is the fully formed version of yourself. It's easy to think that your current view is the correct view. You're going to have, you're going to have different views. You're hopefully more evolved views. You're going to be in a different situation. You're going to have different goals, different priorities, you know? And so when you realize your future self is a different person Mm -hmm. and actually when you take the time to define who your future self is and who you want them to be, what they say that the number one deathbed regret is, Michelle, is, is that people didn't have the courage to be who they really wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Instead, they lived up to the expectations of those around them. Sure. And so when it comes to your future self, what you want to do is you want to be very explicit and honest about who you want to be. You know, your attributes, your characteristics, also your situation, maybe your relationships, your income, like define your future self. And then what you want to do is you want to make decisions based on what your future self would want, not based on what you would want right now. Because mm-hmm. then base. you can actually... Yeah, then you can make great decisions. You know, just as an example, a couple of days ago, I went home and my my son, my eight-year-old son really wanted me to go swimming with him, like in our backyard, because we have a pool, like a lot of people in Florida have pools. <laughs> it's really hot here. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, I was tired. I'd been working all day. I'd been up since five. And he was like, dad, let's swim. And I was just like, you can just swim. You know, like, I'll just watch you. I'll sit on the chair and watch <laughs> But then I thought about it and I said, what would my future self say, you know, and how would I want to remember this in the future? You know, thinking about what my future self would want or what they would say. And I was like, obviously I need to just jump in the pool and play with this guy. Cause I don't want to be, you know, I don't, just because I don't, I don't want to do this in the moment. I will want to have done it. And mm-hmm. so my, uh, you know, it's good to let your future self decide your decisions rather than your current self. Sure. That can kind of motivate you, I guess, to do things that you, that your current self wouldn't, so to speak. Um, I mean, your current self has habits and and your current self has a comfort zone, you know, and has preferences. 
But if you want to, if you want to become your future self, you need to focus on what they would want and what their preferences are and what their comfort zone is. So kind of talking about redesigning your future self, you talk a lot about environment. Now, how, um, how does your environment impact in our case, the food experience, but in generally your experiences. And then, you know, how would you, how, how can you redesign that? So there's a really good, there's a few good quotes I'll share. One is from Marshall Goldsmith. He said, if you do not create and control your environment, your environment will create and control you. So you got to realize that if you're not being mindful and intentional about the environment around you, then you're actually being shaped by your environment. And maybe you're in an environment that's shaping you in a way you don't want to be shaped. That could be your peer group. It could be just negative influences. There's another quote from Zig Ziglar, and it's just a great quote, but he said that your input shapes your outlook and your outlook shapes your output. So your input is anything coming in. That could be the information coming in. It could be food coming in. It could be experiences. It could be people, but anything coming in actually shapes how you see the world and shapes how you experience the world. And so like, obviously environment, like your food is part of your environment the things you put into your body obviously become your body. (laughs) And so very much the things coming in become who you are, not only mentally, but obviously emotionally and physically. You need an environment that will support you in getting there. You need to remove the influences that are keeping you stuck or maybe even pulling you backwards. And you need to surround yourself with the influences. And that includes people, but also information, uh, experiences. You need to create an environment that allows you to become who you want to be. And right now your environment is keeping you where you're at. And so part of reshaping environment is reshaping the roles and the relationships so that people are clear on who your future self is, you know, like part of designing your future self and and being honest about what you really want is then the next step is actually telling people who you want to be. You need to, you know, our identity is shaped by our story and our narratives. And so if you tell people about your future self, that resets your environment in many ways, because now you're resetting the expectations. You're telling people who you want to be. This could be as simple as I really need to, you know, I really want to be better at supporting you at home. Like that's something I could say to my wife. Like, and so that would require me to kind of shift and shake how I do things. But yeah, your environment's huge. Mm-hmm. Sure. And you mentioned, you know, people as well. If you're kind of, kind of declaring, okay, this is who I'm going to be in, you know, five years or 10 years. There, I think two know, or three years is a good amount of time. Sure. Absolutely. Two or three. That's a, that's a big, uh, big goal to aspire to, to begin with, but there are always going to be people who kind of hold you back or, or remember how you were X number of years ago. So I guess that's kind of maybe that part of redesigning your environment is, I don't know, filtering. It's hard to, to filter them out if they're, you know, a family member or a close friend or things like that. You do need to filter your environment. Um, I think that in being honest about who your future self is, there's a lot of people, you know, by telling people about the changes you want to make, you're actually allowing them to, to some degree, let go of their former views of you. That could be a little difficult because people, you're right, people who you've got a long history with and they've known of your former self and your former self is not the person you are anymore or the person you want to be, that could limit them. And they could maybe from a nostalgia perspective, really want you to stay who you were. And so they may try to stop you. I found that that's not usually the case. So usually if you tell people about who you want to be, usually they'll support you and encourage you. And if, if they don't, then they probably 
aren't ready, you know, they're not going to be people in your next chapter. This is why being really honest about your goals is important is because then you can be more authentic and genuine in your relationships. Like if you're serious about doing this thing, whatever it is, or becoming this person, it could be overcoming addiction. It could be starting a business. It could be starting a family, whatever it is. Maybe it's getting in shape or maybe it's just eating healthier. Um, you know, if you're not telling people about what you really want to do, then what you're doing is you're suppressing your goals. And if you're, you know, that's, that's literally what leads to the number one deathbed regret is that you didn't have the courage to be honest with those around you about who you want to be. And instead you were living up to the expectations that you thought that they had of you. Mm. Um, so you need to be honest and explicit about these things so that you can then start actually creating that environment and those relationships that will help you to get there. Sure. And they, you know, that may even surprise you because if who, people who, you know, you tell about your goals, maybe they, you think, oh, they're not going to be supportive. They may end up being very supportive and maybe help you, you know, make the connections you need or get the, you know, whatever, whatever it is, additional education or habits, forming habits, they can turn around and be a help rather than a hindrance. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a good chance you'll need to surround yourself with different types of people as well. Um, you know, as an example, like when I decided I wanted to like get really good at business, I had to like join a mastermind group, like and invest money into that goal and be surrounded by people who are way further along than I was so that I could quickly learn and not only get their strategies, but their mindsets and their skills and their connections and their relationships. And so, yeah, you want to be very strategic about your environment and, and strategic about who you're with. If you're serious about your goals, then you need to be serious about the types of experiences you have and the types of people you're around. But this is also, so there's another really cool quote. This comes from William Durant. He was a famous historian. And he said that the ability of the average person could be doubled if their situation demanded it. And so I call these forcing functions, but you can put yourself in situations where you feel compelled to move forward. You feel you feel like you have to move forward. So like, that's what happened to me when I became a foster parent of three kids that fundamentally changed my environment. <laughs> it changed my situation. And I was required to step up in a way that I hadn't been required to before. Um, and you can create situations that force you to grow, that force you to, to move along. I mean, just as an example, like you could sign up for a marathon and it doesn't have to be a marathon, but you could sign up for a race that then you feel, you know, and you could do it with a friend, like a partner and you by creating that situation, you could feel inspired or compelled to move forward. I mean, by starting a business, you could do the same thing. So the goal is, is that you're setting up situations that bring out the best in you. I love that because you're, you're surrounding yourself with positive people and you're helping, you're almost helping each other because chances are they have their own goals as well. And you're, you're able to share ideas and share information whether, you know, from a health perspective or if you're going into business or something else, but you're kind of, kind of goes both ways, so to speak. It always goes both ways with relationships. That's why you definitely want people to encourage you to move towards your future self rather than overly trying to keep you as your current self. I mean, so if you're really trying to get healthy, it's really great to be around people who are doing similar things, you know, or even are maybe advanced in that well. So it's, yeah, you want people to encourage you to eat healthy rather than offering you the donuts all the time and trying to convince, you know, trying to convince you, oh, don't worry about that. You want people to be like, dude, make the great choice. Like, you know, you want you want people around you to help make it easier to be your future self, not make it harder. Mm, absolutely. So now how do you um 
how do you alter, how do you change, how do you begin, I guess, to change your future self? You're, you're kind of redesigning. You talk about, you know, hanging around with becoming, you know, networked with the right people or setting goals, but what exactly are there, are there some steps or is it just kind of a gradual process? I think that there's a good quote from Dan Sullivan. He says, all progress starts by telling the truth. So I think that, um, you know, I think journaling is a great place to start. And I journal every day about this. And I think it's, it's a refining process. It's not like you're going to arrive at it, but I think that you can think as far as what are the things that I want to change or what are the things that I want in my life? And you start to write them out, but don't just, don't just write it once. Like actually take the time to decide your future self is not something you discover. It's someone you decide to be. And so you, 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 there's a really good old school book called as a man thinketh. I don't know if you ever heard of that one. Mm, It's all about how your thoughts shape your character and they shape your circumstances. And, and so part of this is just thinking about who you want to be and framing it out. Um, and actually taking the time to detail it and design it, you know, like what is your circumstances? How much money do you make? Like taking the time to think about these things and think about where you would like to be and what you would like to be doing and writing it down. And then, you know, actually thinking about it on a daily basis is again, why morning morning journaling is so powerful is because you can think about who you want to be and then you can start acting intentionally rather than on autopilot, rather than just being reactive to your current roles in your environment and just kind of going through the motions, you can be deliberate. You can actually, you know, act towards your future self. That may be courageous actions or just being thoughtful about who you are, maybe in your current roles and just being in acting towards your future self so that on a daily basis, you're spending more time being conscious and deliberate rather than just subconscious and reactive. And so it takes time, but I would say journaling is a great place to start. Just writing about who you want to be and where you want to be. I mean, Darren Hardy uh, in the book, The Compound Effect gives a really good example. He talks about how he journaled out all the attributes and characteristics of his future wife that he wanted. You know, this was like 30 years ago or 20 years ago, but he wrote like the color of hair she had and like the, you know, he, he just, he wrote, he said he wrote 40 pages of details about this woman. This is how wow. imaginative and visionary he was. And, and we can get better and better at this. This is something we can get good at is visualizing and imagining our circumstances and then pursuing them. Um, but after he wrote all this out and then he reread it, he realized that the, that someone of that caliber would not be interested in someone like him. Mm-hmm. And so he then had to write out who he needed to become in order to be someone that was attractive to someone like that. And so then he wrote about who he would need to become in order to find that woman. And obviously he did find that person. Um, and so in psychology, we call it selective attention. You know, you can train your brain what to look for. This is another one of the reasons why personality tests are so negative is because you can take a label and that's all you see. So like in selective attention, as an example, like when you buy a car, you start to see that car on the road everywhere. Have you had that experience? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So like you see the car you're driving because it matters to you, but you don't notice all the other cars. And so with a label, when you've adopted a label, then you only see the label. You don't notice all the times when it's actually not true. Mm-hmm. Um, but with goals, and if you take the time to sketch out your future self and on a daily basis, if you're writing about it, then you can train yourself to see that in your environment and to move in that direction. And you can train your worldview so that you're acting towards your future self. Mm, okay. So from from a food and wellness perspective, you're kind of documenting, okay, well, what what type of person am I going to be? What, what am I going to be eating? What 
type of exercise will I be doing? What kind of, what's my routine? Yeah. Health and fitness. What are, you know, what is, what are the types of food my future self eats? Like what is my future self's body look and feel like? How do I feel in my body? What kind of foods do I eat? What kind of relationship do I have with food? What are the things my current self does and prefers that my future self does not? You know, (laughs) what are, what are the (laughs) addictions and habits that my current self has that my future self will not have? You know, how does my, how healthy is my future self and how, you know, so I, I would take the time to define, yeah, what they eat and how they feel and what their health is. Uh, you know, does your future self run a lot? Do they exercise? You know, are they in great shape and do they feel awesome? And I, I, all of this stuff is detail you would, you, you get to choose, but then you have to use your future self as kind of the metric. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Because a lot of times people say, oh, you know, I'm doing fine. I, I'm just going to keep going, but it's more, you refer to forcing functions, you know, maybe illness is a forcing function to kind of get you to start, uh, start eating healthier or exercising or things like that. Yeah, very much. And hopefully you can be, you can create proactive forcing functions. I mean, an illness would be a reactive one where something negative happens and it forces you to act differently, but the goal is that you actually create proactive forcing functions. Like for example, social pressure, you know, like telling people about what you're going to do uh, or, you know, getting it you know, having a deadline, you know, signing up for a marathon or, or some form of event can be a forcing function. Mm-hmm. And so they shouldn't all be, but an illness is a hundred percent can be a forcing function. It can require you to make changes. Mm, yes, absolutely. So you're, um, giving up sugar up refined sugar was that was that a positive or a negative forcing function you think Maybe well it's a little bit it was both. a forcing function because we did it as a family together and we removed all the sugar from our house and because we were doing it together you kind of feel more compelled to do it you know if you're doing it by yourself you may cheat on yourself mm. so it's good to do it with other people because then you're kind of you feel like you need to do it for the team but yeah i think it's great i mean i think that you forget about it. You know, it's a decision fatigue thing. Uh, There's a quote from Michael Jordan where he said, once I made a decision, I never thought about it again. That's Mm -hmm. kind of the key is that a hundred percent. So at Clayton Christensen, the Harvard business professor, he said a hundred percent commitment is easier than 98% commitment. Cause when you're Mm -hmm. only 98% committed to something, then you, you have to make a choice in every future situation. So in every future situation, you're like, is this one of those times I'm going to eat sugar? And that's called decision fatigue. You have to, you know, you're making decisions over and over and over again. And chances are the environment's going to beat you in a lot of those decisions or in a lot of those situations. And so if you become hundred percent committed, then you don't have to think about it anymore. You know, it's like, no, I just, we don't eat sugar. It's part of our identity. It's part of our situation right now. So we don't have sugar in our house because we don't have to think about it, but also in future situations, it's just not an option because we're sugar free for the time being. So we don't have to make a decision in the future because uh, we've already made the decision in the present. Well, I can't wait for this book to come out. And really, I love how you really get into depth about personality and about changing yourself, that you're not, you're not permanent, so to speak. So how can people get in contact with you and, and order the book? And so, yeah, so my website's benjaminhardy.com. There's free online courses and free resources there on my blog posts, and you can kind of get the book wherever you want, Amazon, Audible, Kindle, Barnes and Noble, wherever you prefer to get books, the book is available there. And my website is benjaminhurry.com and there's free resources. Okay, great. And we'll include all these resources in the show notes. 
and it comes out, the book comes out in June, but it's available now. Okay. Yeah. I mean, people can buy it now, but they'll get it in June. Okay. Wonderful. But you can get the free resources now. That's even better. So they can be, uh, be gearing up for the, when the book comes out. That's wonderful. Well, Dr. Benjamin Hardy, thank you so much for being with us. It's been wonderful. We're excited about your book and we're excited about your all of your upcoming endeavors and work. Thank you. I'm just grateful to be with you. 